0: My first job after graduating college was with Danny Meyer, working for Union Square Hospitality Group. It was the company that I wanted to work for. I remember his colleague, Richard Corain, came and spoke at one of my classes, and the moment that class ended, I knew that was the company I wanted to be a part of. But... What I didn't realize when I went down and interviewed with Richard Corain in whatever cheap suit I owned at the time trying to look as professional as possible as a 20-year-old senior at Cornell was that the restaurant I landed at was going to be, well, even a more perfectly fully realized version of where I wanted to be than any of the other places at USHG. And that was at Tabla. Tabla was kind of the redheaded stepchild of Union Square Hospitality Group. Hilariously enough, it sat next door to 11 Madison Park. And it was an Indian restaurant. And so, you know, Gramercy Tavern, Union Square Cafe, they were always number one and two in Zagat. Tabla was the place where we always had to, you know, do whatever it took to keep that dining room full. There were ups and downs. Floyd got a three-star review from the New York Times for his unbelievable cooking. He he was truly one of the greatest chefs that I've ever had the pleasure to work for. But to be clear, he was not easy. When you start manager training, one of the first things you do is a kitchen stage. And I remember being in the kitchen, trying so hard not to mess up. I mean, it was my first job after school. All I wanted to do was to fit in, to impress everyone around me. And he came up behind me as I was chopping onions one day. And I forget what he said. Another partner at USHG had this quote he used to do from Maya Angelou, Paul Bulls Bevan. He would say, people forget what you say, they'll forget what you do, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Whatever Floyd said to me that day, I remember he made me feel scared as shit. He was intense. His expectations were so high, his aspirations for excellence unwavering. But a few months later, I got to know the other side of Floyd, the softer side, the loving side the side that made so many people that worked at Tabla feel so committed to its success in spite of the ups and downs. And it was, well, probably in the next couple of years that I learned where that side came from. That was Barca Cardos. We've talked about collaboration in this conference, and we talk about it between the people within the walls of the restaurant, how you collaborate together to create the best possible product, what people don't often recognize is the collaboration that happens at home, the person behind the person that we always know, the colleague in the household that makes the person that we read about in the newspaper the best version of themselves. My mom passed away a long time ago, and there are a few people that I've called mom since. Barca is one of those people. She embraces vulnerability and compassion in ways that very, very few other people do. And she's done that probably in ways she never thought she'd have to over the past couple seasons since we lost Floyd. This was an amazing conversation. And I was so honored that she trusted me to have it on this podcast. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the weekly special you do.
1: Weekly special <laughs> weekly specials <laughs> do, 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 do do do
0: the weekly special. My next guest is a very dear friend. Someone I've known for nearly two decades after our first meeting when I was the front door manager at Tabla, working for her late husband, Chef Floyd Cardoz, She raised their two sons, Peter and Justin, and was a devoted, loving, and active supporter of Floyd and the restaurants from Tabla all the way to Pawala and Bombay Bread Bar. After Chef Floyd's passing due to complications from the coronavirus, she took on a spice project to help preserve his legacy. She is truly one of the most wonderful women I have ever had the pleasure of meeting. Barkha, it's such a pleasure to have you on.
1: Thank you for having me, Will.
0: You know, it's been interesting in this podcast. I've interviewed people I know well. I've interviewed people that I don't know super well. Outside of interviewing my dad, you're the closest to family that I've talked to. And I already said this at the top, but my mom passed away a long time ago. There's only been a couple people that I've ever referred to as mom. And you're one of those people. And so, because I guess, I mean, you and I have known each other since 2001, which is crazy.
1: Wow. Yeah, that is crazy. You're making me feel really old now.
0: (laughs) Well, then both of us. (laughs) So I want to just start. We're obviously, we're going to talk about Floyd. We're going to talk about all this stuff, but we did a whole thing about collaboration. And I think about that As I talk to friends who raise children together and the collaboration in the household, what I said at the top, I'll just give you a little sneak preview is that Floyd was amazing. He was also a real hard ass and sometimes the most stubborn pain of the ass imaginable. And I feel like he was, (laughs) (laughs) he was who he was ultimately, though, because of your influence. And so can you just talk about in the Tabla days? the relationship at home, not only raising the kids, but your role in shaping him as a chef?
1: I think we'll have to go back to when we first got married. And that was the time when he was, he had started working for Grey Coons at Las And then from there, you know, he got introduced to Danny and uh, Michael Romano. And, you know, fast forward, gets into Union Square Hospitality Group with the intention of opening Tabla. And I think at that point, we had, you know, we, we both worked two jobs. We both did whatever we needed to do because we wanted to start a family and we had no money in our pockets. And I think we literally sat down one day and said, well, do we want... It was never about just his career. It was always about what's our family career going to be. So we always worked as a team. And it was, this is an amazing opportunity for him because he always had this vision. I think when his first conversation with me about, you know, using flavors and spices was when he was 21. And he had always told me someone needs to take French food, French techniques and add flavors to it. And I would laugh and I would like, who's <laughs> going to do that? And he's like, watch. me." So when Tabla came around and it was like, wow, I'm getting this opportunity to do that. We had to sit down and showcase ourselves mentally to say, what are we going to do with our kids? What are we going to do as a family? And so we decided together as a unit that he was going to be the face of our family and he was going to go out and do what he needed to. Rest assured that everything else was going to be taken care of at home, whether it was the kids, whether it was schooling, whether it was, you know, their sports, meals. We decided that that's how it was going to be. And and it stayed for the 30 years that we were married. It was always, it was never about him. It was about us. And so that's how we did it. And I'm so thankful for that, Will, because seeing how the hospitality business sucks everything out of you, you have to give it 200% or you can't do anything. I'm thankful that you know, I got the opportunity to hold his hand and walk that path with him, enjoy his moments, but at the same time, make sure that our family unit stayed sacred and together.
0: Well, Alana, I have a question, but when you just said you were both working two jobs, it makes me realize that I probably should have started even earlier. Can you just tell me just for the sake of the story, when did you guys meet? When did you move here? Can you just like tell that story a little bit?
1: So Floyd and I met in cooking school in India. I was 17, he was 21, and we were good friends. And then once we finished with school, he went on to Switzerland to study more. I stayed back in India and did I actually taught cooking Mm. at the school where we graduated for about a year and a half. And we were great friends. And then I came to the States to visit my sister. And one of her friends told me, hey, you know, there's someone else from cooking school that's here that used to be my neighbor in India. And he lives in Queens. And I'm like, who's that? She goes, Floyd. And I'm like, I know Floyd. Floyd and I are good friends.
0: Wait, you lost touch and then you randomly re-met here? Yeah. I never knew that.
1: Yeah, so like we'd always keep in touch because my parents lived in Bhopal. And so for me, it was, you know, when I went to Bombay to visit, if he was around, we'd meet up for a coffee or something. And this last trip, if I was coming to the States, it was so crazy that I didn't get an opportunity to get in touch with him or whatever. And then I come here and his neighbor, who's a friend of my sister's in New Jersey, so random. tells oh, I know someone that also went to cooking school. And she goes, Floyd. And I'm like, Floyd and I are really good friends. And she's like, well, he's here. And so I called. Wait, had
0: you ever dated in India or did you date for the first time here?
1: No. Well, he was Catholic. I was Hindu. That wasn't something you ever, you know, those were boundaries that you didn't cross. And so we were just very close and good friends. And I called him. I remember he he would talk about this always that we I called him and I wouldn't tell him who I was on the phone. And he's like, who are you? And I'm like, your girlfriend. And he's like, shit, I don't know who this is. (laughs) (laughs) Take anybody's name because I'm like, oh, I'm going to mess this one up. But then he realized who it was. And then we kept in touch and we started dating, I think almost two years after that.
0: Wait, don't glaze over this part. I wanna know, how did he ask you out the first time?
1: He didn't really ask me out, isn't that strange? It was just something that we we decided together that we wanted to give it a shot because we liked one another. So when you come from home, whatever country it is that you come from, when you come to the state, especially when you're an adult, I was 24 when I came here, you're already kind of set in your ways of who you are or what you want to be all of 24, you know, we didn't want to just have, you know, a relationship or whatever. We, I think we were both done with those that phase of our lives and our relationship as friends was so important to us that we literally knew we were attracted to one another. We liked one another but we didn't want to you know like give up on that friendship because you you only knew two and a half people and to give that up knowing that you had that comfort zone of knowing one another so we decided that we would give it a shot and try it out and we did you know baby steps he did most of the work he would work he would work a break shift at an indian restaurant And I used to work in the garment center and I used to live in New Jersey. And so we would just do, he'd meet me in the morning at the bus stop, 42nd Street, Port Authority. We'd walk to a place, get breakfast, then he'd walk me to work and then he'd go to the restaurant, open the restaurant because of the keys and take a nap till about 11, 30 and start working. And it's when he could, when he'd get a break shift and he finished work at three or four, he'd then take the train, come up to Midtown, uh, come down to Midtown, see me for a cup of coffee. And he made all the effort.
0: I love that. Well, so, okay, so I really wanted to hear that. And I think everyone wanted to hear that. And by the way, I did know you went to cooking school. And this is just a little insider thing. All of us that worked at Tabla, we loved going to Bread Bar on our days off, but the best cooking you ever got as a part of the table team was when we got invited out to Jersey for, it was one of the, the parties we had every year. I, f- what, I forget what day it was. What holiday? Say Labor it again? Labor, Labor Day. And you would make the biryani?
1: Yeah, we'd do all, I mean it was crazy. We'd do a biryani, we'd do Indian food, we'd grill, Floyd would bring out his best wines and alcohol. And it was just, you know, it was family time. Mm. It was family time. And that was special. And everybody came with their kids or, you know, their better halves. It was just such an amazing time. I love those.
0: But just to underscore, we all loved Floyd's cooking, but we really loved Barca's cooking.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
0: So, okay, back to Tabla and the collaboration at home. And I love how you articulated that because I think it's something that I'm certainly working on. And I know a lot of people in our industry work on it that you can get so swept up in the craziness of the day to day that you start approaching it as an individual and not recognizing that the family at home needs to come first and if you're making decisions together as a family, you're always going to feel more supported and empowered when you're at work. But I felt like with Floyd, there was always on one shoulder the culture of the kitchen at Les Penas, which was old school, right? Like there was no emotion. Yeah. A hierarchy. People did not apologize for anything. And then on the other corner, the culture of home. And there were days when he would leave the restaurant in a mood and come back the next day, a whole different version. And it was always clear, okay, Barca sat down and they had a conversation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So the, the easiest way to tell that he was upset or something was bothering him is Floyd was a man of very few words and he would just sit there and you knew when he walked into the house the first thing he always did, well, which I miss, he whatever it was, and 99% of the times it was me being in the kitchen, getting, rushing to get his meal ready because the boys were done and they were, you know, going to bed or whatever. And then I would start cooking for him. So it was always like I was always like flying by the seat of my pants saying, oh, my God, he's going to be here in 20 minutes. We had a thing that the moment he got in his car in the city, he had to call me Mm. to let me know he was on his way home because then that gave me that window of like 30 minutes to make sure that the food's ready. But he'd walk in and he would always sneak up from behind me, hug me and kiss me every day. And that was something that I was like, I'm busy. And he's like, well, you're not too busy for a kiss. You can never busy for a kiss. And it was just the sweetest thing because it was like everything else needs to wait because I haven't seen you all day. I just need to hug you. And you could tell from his hug if he had had a good day or he was stressed out because if he was stressed out, it was just he did it for the sake of doing it. And then he was like, I need to get a drink and he'd sit down. And so I, over the years, learned that when that was what happened, I had to be quiet for a bit. I had to let him get his shoes off, have a couple of sips of his drink, and then you'd realize, okay. So I'm like, what's going on? And then he, you know, in his own way, kind of analyzed the day or analyzed what happened and we talk about it. And then it was never me telling him about what he should be doing, but it was always about I'm the outsider looking in and this is what I see. This is what I feel. And a lot of times I feel when you're in any relationship, when you're in it, your vision is very different from when you sit back or you sit outside and you look in. You get a whole different perspective. And I think I brought that to him because I was the outsider looking in. But I knew where he was coming from. So it was always a question of, well, maybe you should try this. Maybe you think this would work better. Or maybe, you know, what you did was too harsh. You didn't step in the other person's shoes. Or maybe you did the right thing. So it it was a conversation. But we would have those conversations.
0: One of the things I learned from him... Obviously, in the first couple months working there, I was so in awe of him as a chef. And I mean, his, his chef coat was always perfectly pressed. The kitchen was spotless. The food was extraordinary. I had never worked in any restaurant even close to that before. But I remember one time, I forget what, what happened the night before, but the next day he came and grabbed me. And I don't know if he ex- like explicitly said, I'm sorry, but he expressed vulnerability about our interaction the night before. And I mean, that's what we're talking about this month at the Welcome Conference is the power of vulnerability in leadership, the power of vulnerability in relationships. And I've always felt that so clearly from you. I remember that happened and it wasn't that long after that, that you and I met for the first time and I was like, oh, this is where he gets it. And so can you just talk about before we get into it a little bit, like your thoughts on the importance of vulnerability in relationship and leadership.
1: For me, I feel that when you're in a relationship, you need to commit. You're committing to whatever it is that you're taking on. And when you do that, you got to do it with an open heart and and a mindset where it's like, if I mess up, I need to own it. I... I think that Floyd and I worked on that a lot. We never took it for granted. There'd be times where, you know, egos clashed, but we had to let go of the egos and say, like, what is more important, my relationship? And so I think we we taught one another on being open, and I think we took that to different places. Like he took it to work. He was very clear about the fact that, you know, I own my space. I'm proud of it. But there are times when I mess up. And he very early on had realized that Indian culture, men don't learn to accept and acknowledge when they mess up. They don't know how to apologize because we don't teach our children to do that. It's like, oh, you don't, you're a man. You don't have to do that. And he learned that that was important, that you could be in charge, but you're human and you make mistakes. And we tried our best to do what we could, with just being honest and open. And I think that brought out the human element. And when you allow yourself to be human, you know, it comes, it just comes because it's it's so important. Humanity is about being open, being accepting of the fact that we can make mistakes. And what we do with that and how we go forward is where, you know, you change your mindset and you change other people. So we both were very conscious of the fact that we come from a culture where, you know, one has the upper hand on a relationship and we didn't want that. So we made sure that we tried our best to keep our egos in check. And we're real. And that helped.
0: Can you talk about that with raising your kids? Because, by the way, Peter and Justin are two of the best kids ever. And you can tell that that, I mean, nothing happens on accident. And so tell me how you approached being a mom.
1: (laughs) It was rough. I didn't realize that, you know, coming from a society where it's community and family that helps you raise your kids, when you come to the states and especially with Floyd and me with the job he had with what he did I think for pretty much most of the kids being young I was a single parent Mm. um, working full-time and raising two boys and I was just very conscious of the fact that I had to do his part as well I have to say though he's one the few people I've known in this business that always chose his family over his friends. He chose his family over going to events to go to, you know, so he initially would go to a lot of those. And then we realized that it was eating into family time and he was losing out on seeing his boys because during the week he'd be gone. By the time he came home, they were in bed. And um, if he went away to do events on weekends, he hardly ever saw them. And so that became my job to raise them as both their mom and dad. And, you know, we, we tried our best to teach them by example. It wasn't like I'm going to say what I need to say, but I'm going to do something else. It was a combination of... We need to teach them right from wrong, but we also need to, to show them how to do that. And so we did it. And once he settled down in Tabla, he made a conscious effort to be home on the weekends. And I know it used to upset a lot of the managers uh, because he would take the days off. But I think that helped us a lot with family time. And it paid off because, you know, as the kids started getting older, he was there with them. He made that extra effort to be around and be present. And I'm thankful for that because they have so many beautiful memories now. More than that, it's life lessons. Life lessons you learn when you see, not just, you know, by reading.
0: Well, yeah. And... By the way, I mean, we talk about this with the oxygen mask, like how counterintuitive it is when you're on the plane and people say, hey, uh, put your own mask on before you put it on your infant child. But we always talk about that in our culture because if you're not figuring out what your oxygen is, if you're not taking time to fill your own gas tank as a leader, you can't turn around and lead and inspire those around you. And yeah, I would imagine Floyd was a much better leader Monday through Friday because he took the weekends with you guys. And he just had the maturity and the wherewithal to know that that was his oxygen. And he needed to prioritize that such that he could be the best version of himself in the restaurant as well.
1: Well, I get so many messages from a lot of the cooks, people that worked at Tabla, and the men. A lot of them that are raising their own kids now, that's something that they will always tell me, chef taught me to be a better father. And to me, that is validation that not only did he do that for his own kids, he taught everyone that was young and in his kitchen and watching him to realize that you could have this as your passion and, you know, as what you want to do, but you also can learn to balance it out with family life.
0: Let's talk about that because... Obviously, it was super early in the pandemic that we lost Floyd. And I know there's people all over the country who have had people close to them that have passed. Floyd is the only person that I am that close with that we've lost this year. And we wanted to do this podcast, A, because I think there's so much we can learn from you, and B, because there's been so much stuff that's happened since then. And I just think that super important... He was so important to me and so many other people that I want to make sure we're all continuing to tell his story and to keep his legacy alive. And we're going to get into in a little bit how you're doing that. But can you just talk about the outpouring of love from the community of people that loved him and worked for him that that came to you
1: in the months that followed? It's still coming. It's still coming. I knew he was important to people. I knew he made a difference to a lot of lives. I didn't understand the depth of it. It was just crazy. It was just crazy because I still distinctly remember March 25th. And by the time I told our family about it, I must have had a minimum of a thousand to two thousand messages, where that was on Floyd's phone, on social media, text messages, people were trying to call. And it was just like, where are all these people coming from? Because in my world, my world was about 15 and 20 people that knew him. I think the biggest one that sits with me is. I think about a month or so later, I was going through his phone and on one of his social media platforms, there was a message from someone in India. And I looked at it and I'm like, I wonder who this person is. And me being me, I replied and said, thank you, you know, kind of you to have reached out. And the person replied and said, I never met Chef. Mm-hmm. I just called texted him asking him if he could help me make a decision about my life in, you know, my professional life. And she said, the next, you know, he sent me his phone number in India saying, I'm in India right now. Here's my number, call me. And she said, I called him and he got on the phone and had a conversation and helped me decide what my next steps should be as far as a profession is concerned and helped me get on that path. And I just want you to know he changed my life with that phone call. I didn't even expect him to acknowledge my text, leave alone, send me his phone number. And she says, I will forever remember that. And the next time you're in India, and if you decide to come to the city where I'm at, know you're my guest. And this is a person that he had never met. He didn't know who they were. And that's what he did. But that's what Floyd was about And I'm seeing that even today with people reaching out, with people saying things, it's hard, but there's so much pride in knowing that to him, it was about humanity first. It was about people first. It was about if I can do something, he literally lived his mantra of paying it forward. And he did it every single day in whichever way he could.
0: Has Has all of the, I would imagine, and we talked about this early on, 2,000 messages as you're grieving is super overwhelming. But has that been helpful in your healing process, more challenging?
1: It was hard initially because it was like when you're in that space of shock and tremendous loss where you wake up and you're like, this is a nightmare. Am I going to wake up from it? Can someone pinch me out of this? And getting bombarded with all of that, it just got to a point where it was overwhelming because all you wanted was space to not feel anything. And people were just reaching out because they were in pain. They didn't know where to go. And the only place they knew where to go to feel some solace, some comfort was Floyd's home. And it for us, it was, for us, it was, what are we doing? How are we going to heal if this is what we're going to keep doing for someone else? But now when I look at it, I think because I'm also at a space in my own head where I'm trying to heal and I'm talking about it out loud, I'm thankful because I feel like Everybody in their own way from reaching out has held my hand and helped me stand tall. And that was something I never thought I'd be able to do for me. It was just Floyd and he wasn't there. And I'm finding everybody showing up in their own way, holding my hand and, and literally popping me up every day saying, we're here. And he's physically not here, but his energy is here because... He gave us a part of him and we're going to help you. And that
0: helps a lot. I think it's one of the things that I loved about your family, which was, I mean, listen, (laughs) Floyd was competitive and he wanted to win, right? He wanted every accolade that we could get. Yeah. We coveted those stars and all that stuff. But it, it was always very clear that the number of people whose lives you could invest in was more lasting and more important than all of that. And yeah, I mean, right now the stars are meaningless, right? It's, it's just the people that maintain a legacy of a person, right?
1: Completely. You can, you realize only when you go through a loss like this, that all you have is now. All you have is this moment, all you have is today, and everything else will come when it needs to, but you have to be present in your now. You have to take what life is giving you today, because tomorrow is not promised. And I, I did try my best in the 30 years, I think we both did, to live in the now, to live in the moments, but you know, you're human, you tend to get distracted and you're like, what's the next big thing? What's the next achievement? What's, you know, am I gonna get a bigger house? Am I gonna get a bigger car? Am I gonna get, you know, more stuff? And now where I'm sitting these past eight months have been such an awakening in my head to say, you talk that talk, but you didn't walk it. Change. Change because this is your reality. All you have is this space and relationships. Everything else is so fleeting. And I'm trying really, really hard while I'm, you know, working on healing and I'm doing what I need to do to be able to stand up every morning is be thankful and be grateful for today. For what I have in front of me and just hold on tight to what's dear.
0: It's one of the things that I found myself feeling early in quarantine was that this season marked kind of a restoration of appreciation where things slowed down to the point where the little moments that never had much impact at all suddenly were things that I found myself appreciating for the first time in a long time. And that's that okay. feels like that's what you're saying. Yeah, the things we took for granted and, and hoping that we don't start taking them for granted again.
1: Mm, I think 2020, if we didn't sit still and pay attention to what it brought to our plates, we've lost it. Because I look at 2020 as a time when we're all kneeling, we're all on our knees. And if we don't pick ourselves up, hold hands and stand tall uh, with a lot of gratitude, with a lot of knowledge and acceptance that we will get through it and we have to learn to hold hands. We have to realize that you know, it's not a one-man show. It's teamwork. But for me, my team has been my boys and our extended family. Everyone's hurting, Will. Everyone's hurting, whether it's loss of life, whether it's loss of you know, your profession, whether it's jobs, health. But we are consciously reaching out to one another, and we're holding hands in the best way we can. And to me, that is what 2020 is showing me. Gratitude, a lot of gratitude.
0: I want to ask, because I was, when I asked you to do this, I tried to do this podcast. I tried to articulate in as many different ways as humanly possible that you could say no, because I do not want to just add something else to your plate. But we're talking about healing and And we're talking about legacy, which we're going to get into more in a moment. How is talking about this stuff helpful in the healing process?
1: It's hard. It's hard because I'm trying not to think about it so that I still think he's on a trip and he's going to come home. But my reality is he's not. I feel if I have the responsibility Of showing my kids that there is pain but through your pain you can come out the other side either being stronger or you can just fall apart and I know I want to come out stronger Um, not just for myself for my kids for my family but also for my own survival because I mean, there's been so many times I wish it was me that was gone and not him. I don't know how to function without him. I never did without him. And so for me right now, I have to learn that this is my reality. And this is what I have to learn to walk by myself. He's there, but he's not there physically. And so I feel like If I can even help one more person understand that, we will get through that tunnel. We will see some light. I want to do it. I want to do it even though it brings tears to my eyes and it hurts my soul. I want to do it because we have to survive and do it well.
0: Let's talk about Floyd's legacy and the things you're doing to... To keep that alive and thriving, and I, I've seen it in a bunch of ways, having conversations like this, kind of doing exactly what you just said you're focused on doing. I also think it's so beautiful what you're doing with the with the spice project, with the burlap and barrel spices. It's a a group of spice blends that he had been working on, but sadly never got to finish. I I read in this article that you did with food and wine. You said he was this bright star that woke up every morning asking, what can I do next? I just don't, I don't want people to forget him. And the spice blend is a way for him to keep teaching other people. Can you talk about the spices a little bit?
1: Floyd and I cooked a lot at home meals, Weekday meals was my responsibility. Weekends was him because then dad made the fun stuff. You know, he made the steak. He did all that stuff. Weekdays, it was he was very clear about the fact that he needed his Indian food. So I, you know, every day once, like I said, once the boys were done and the boys didn't want to eat Indian food, so we do, you know, I'd do pastas. I'd do you know rice. I'd do different things for the boys, and then. Once they were finished, then I'd start cooking for Floyd. So there would be some days where I had enough of time and I, you know, went through the whole motions of grinding my spices and doing stuff. And there'd be days where I'm like, oh, he just called. He has 20 minutes to get home. I better get this meat. <laughs> and i like, you know, sneak in like store-bought spice blends or whatever it was and just do like a quick fix. Floyd was one of those people that never complained about his food. He was always thankful. He was always grateful that you had cooked a meal for him. And he would sit there, he would eat his food. And then I'm like, okay, I, I did this. We got through tonight. And then when we we're going to bed, he's like, did you have a busy night? Were you busy old? <laughs> Uh (laughs) And you would go like, well, I think you use store-bought spices. You use the blends that I told you to throw out a while ago because they don't have, they're like almost dead spices. They're so, you know, like the flavors are so simple and like single toned, if that makes sense. And I'm like, how did you realize? He goes, well, last time I checked, I was a chef, right? So I know the difference. And so he never, ever criticized that you had done something wrong. He knew I did that because I didn't have the time. And so then it was like, you have to help me. So he started grinding blends for me and keeping. And he's like, okay, you can make the kaldin with this. You can make, you know, uh, make the pulao with this. You can do this. And it would help because then I didn't have to take out all my whole spices, grind them and use them. The boys picked up on that. So when they started going to college, it was like, dad, can you make us some blends? Because we're cooking at home and our friends want to eat and, you know, we want to impress them and stuff. And so we started doing that. So from there on, that was what we did. And two years ago, we were talking, I'm like, Floyd, what am I going to do next? Because now that the boys are all grown up and, you know, I need to have something. And he's like, well, why don't. You always wanted to do the blends, so let's see those through. So we started working on those about a year and a half ago with Burlap and Barrel. Ethan, by the way, used to work at Tabla oh. um, as a cook in 2010, and he always kept in touch with Floyd. That was the beauty of Floyd and his relationships. He always kept in touch with people. And so over the years, they would talk about stuff that, you know, Ethan had started four years ago, bringing spices back from his stays in Afghanistan and other places and Floyd would try them out. And so he connected the three of us and he was like, I'm going to help you with the blends, but you got to take this on as your responsibility to see it through. And that's where it started. And we actually had worked on these blends with Ethan and we were looking to sample them out when he came back from India in March. And he just came home and fell sick and never got to do it. So mindset was, I need a purpose. I need to do something. And he would always tease me that I was one of those people that always did things started something really you know excited enthusiastic and then I dropped the ball and this was something I wanted to make him proud and show him that I didn't drop the ball that I actually could see it through and so that became my purpose it's helped me so much to be able to wake up in the morning and do this but the joy that comes out of when you get a note from somebody or somebody posts about it to say, I love the blends and I feel like Floyd's in my kitchen. And that's what I wanted because he just always said the day I know that everybody's got some spice in their kitchen cabinet is when I'm going to rest till then I'm going to keep working at it because People are missing out on flavor. People are missing out on on just knowing what it is to eat food. That's just taken to a whole different level when you add spices to it. So I want to do that.
0: You know, <laughs> I've been. We were talking about this before, but I've been on one of these crazy like keto diets where I've been eating carbs or sugar or basically all of the things that I've really enjoy eating. Um. And those spices have literally saved my life. Not only in making food more delicious, but it's made me feel closer to him and to you. Whether it's you know just putting some on some some meat or some shrimp or over some eggs or and I said before that I liked the goan masala the best, and you said you like the Kashmir Kashmir masala. Can this has been like a pretty heavy, intense interview? Let's just do something lighthearted for a second. Tell people at home, give them one dish. Tell them how to make something with like something simple with one of these.
1: Oh, the easiest thing to do is if you take any protein, well, basically like poultry, I've done chicken or I've done fish, like shrimp or fish. Just put a little bit of that Kashmiri masala on it. You can even add some yogurt and salt to it and marinate your chicken in that and then grill it. Or you can do, just take the powder and just dab it, rub it on your meat and um, add some lime to it, salt and lime to it and and put it in the oven. As simple as that. Grill vegetables and then just throw a little bit of those blends on there to finish off. And it just adds so much life to your food. So much life to your food. It's so simple people were getting upset when we first started saying there's no recipe card in there. And I'm like, well, that's the trick. Your mind is your recipe card. Just use it however you want. No boundaries. Don't fear it. Don't fear spices. Don't fear the blends. Just use them. I Love that.
0: If you don't have spice in your home, remember what she just said. Floyd so wanted to make sure everyone had spices in their home. So buy some. They're amazing. I think part of this is keeping his legacy alive and so I mean I know there's a community of us that all worked at Tabla and we were like the bad news bears and adversity made us closer and will forever be close like the group of us that worked there will remain close forever I know that and that's because of his leadership and his humanity and his vulnerability After 9-11, it was so hard at Tabla and he could have been one of those proud chefs that tried to pretend everything was great, but instead he showed up with his heart and his hat and hand and he, he got a group of us to work even harder. And by the way, it's really hard to motivate people when times are not good. It's a lot easier to do that when times are good, but he accomplished it by just being so beautifully human. And so there's a group of us that know that about him and we're all going to remember him and carry on his legacy in our own different ways. But for the people out there that didn't have the beautiful luxury of working with him, how do you want him to be remembered? What do you want his legacy to be?
1: Floyd always showed up. He was one of those people that, Like you said, was a hard ass. He was tough, but he was family. He made sure you were his family. He loved deeply and cared deeply. And he just, the biggest thing that I, when I look back at what he did all these years, well, is mentorship. You came into his world, you became his family, and he wanted to, showcase you. It wasn't about you work for me or you're, you know, you're, I'm the one that needs to be showcased first. He showcased every, he was humble with that. He wasn't about his ego of, you know, I need to be somebody. It was like, we need to be something. He was always about teamwork. He loved when his team did well. He loved when his people did well. And and got awards and you know got promotions and stuff. I think he was one of the first people that anybody that I know that did something special Floyd's text came. if he heard about it, he texted you right away to say, "Hey, I'm so happy for you. Congratulations for him." That was like he did his part of import giving you the best that he could of himself, and you took it and you took it to a whole different level. We always believed in the fact that as chefs, all of you have a big platform. You may not have money in your pocket, but you have a big platform and people love to see you doing stuff. So he always believed in paying it forward, using that platform, giving others either an opportunity or doing events to raise funds Because he always said, shame on us if we don't do what we need to do to pay it forward. Life is always about paying it forward. And he did that till the end. He may not have had cash to write a check out, but he would never say no to doing an event to raise money because he was very conscious of the fact that We need to, our legacy is about what we did and how we made people feel. And also about what we're leaving our children with, not just his own children, but everyone else that's coming after to say, if we don't show them by example, what are we doing? We're doing nothing. And I don't think he wasted a single minute. Of his 59 years, or I should say the 30 years that I have known him, Mm. of being with him, to not do that. He did it literally every single day to the best of his ability, in any which way he could. And nothing was too big or too small for him. So that's his legacy, is doing, paying forward, and just making sure you make people feel good.
0: Parker, I love you so much. Thank you.
1: You too. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us and a special thanks to the incredibly generous sponsors who give us the resources to not only create this content, but to deliver it to you. Perhaps the greatest gift is that they've given us the opportunity to connect with you here, even during a season when we're unable to connect with you in person. Those are our friends and partners at American Express, at Resi, and at Sam Pellegrino. We appreciate you all so much. That catchy music you hear, that's by our friend Aaron Raitier. He's amazing. Check him out. And to the team at the Welcome Conference who's been working so hard this year. Obviously, Anthony Rudolph and Brian Canlis you see alongside me on stage. But then Aaron Ginsberg who's been running the show with a ton of support by Sandra DiCapua. There's a lot to be thankful for even during a time that feels so challenging. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And if you want to check... Up on us and see what we're up to, go to welcomeconference.org It's the weekly special. you do 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 do, do. Weekly Special You lili do do Weekly specials do 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 The Weekly Special do, 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 do,
1: do.